Like some of us here, I had the privilege of growing up in a Christian family. So I was exposed to church and church culture at a very young age. And growing up in church culture, one thing that I was uh, taught, or uh, I should say I intuitively came to learn, was that there are certain illegitimate and inappropriate feelings that I should not have as a Christian. And one of them was this. As a Christian, I should not be feeling down or depressed or downcast. After all, as I was intuitively taught, feeling downcast is what people in the world feel. People who do not have Jesus and do not have hope, they are the ones who would feel downcast. But for us who know the Lord and have Jesus, of all people, we should not feel downcast. So this was further reinforced by songs that were drummed into my head all the way from Sunday school. Songs like this one, you know. I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. Join me. I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart to stay. Okay, you know that song, right? And the song goes on with different lines, including this one. And if the devil doesn't like it, he can sit on a tag. Ouch. Right? As if to say the devil who brings sadness and this feeling of downcastness can stay out of the picture because as believers, we have joy that is deep down in our hearts. Now, it's a good song. Uh, don't get me wrong, okay? We can still sing this song, and there is a certain truth to this song. But with songs like this that was drummed into my head, I grew up thinking that as God's child, I should constantly feel and carry and display this joyful triumphalism. And feeling downcast is an illegitimate and inappropriate feeling to have as a Christian. Read Psalm 42 and 43. And one thing you and I cannot miss is that the psalmist was feeling downcast. Even the most superficial reading of Psalm 42 and 43 will reveal to us that that was the feeling that the psalmist had as he wrote the psalm. He was downcast. Downcast enough to constantly allow this refrain to happen throughout both psalms. And this is what leads us to think that both Psalms, Psalm 42 and 43, were written together as one collective piece, okay? And what is this refrain? Found in Psalm 42, verse 5, found in Psalm 42, verse 11, and 43, verse 5. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Saviour and my God. And this refrain that happens at three portions throughout the two psalms roughly divides these two psalms into three equal parts. And if there's one thing that you and I can tell from the refrain, it is that the psalmist is downcast. And in the midst of the psalmist feeling this way, he tells himself to hope in God. Now, this phrase, the tense, is in the imperative mood, okay? It is not in the indicative mood. Indicative mood is to say that I am doing this now. I am hoping to do this. I should do this. That is in the indicative mood, okay? In the imperative mood, it is do this. Hope in God. 
meaning the psalmist is telling himself or even commanding himself to hope in God. You could almost say that the psalmist is engaging in self-talk here, where in the midst of feeling downcast, he almost has to kick himself into remembering that there is hope in God. That because God is his saviour and his God, there is real reason for hope and praise. That's not near to the psalmist now, and he almost has to kick himself into remembering that. A closer look at the three sections will show why the psalmist is feeling downcast. So the first five verses of Psalm 52 show us clearly that the psalmist longs for God and misses his presence. How much? Enough for the first words of this psalm to be etched in the opening lines of the beautiful song we have just sung, right? As the dear panthers fall, the water so my soul long above dirty. As much as the deer thirsts for water, searching high and low to quench its thirst, so it is with the very soul of the psalmist. He longs and thirsts for the living God, the source of his life. Yet that very presence of God that he seeks so desperately for is what he does not have at the moment. The joy and pleasure of being in God's presence is what the psalmist misses and longs to restore. But instead of being surrounded by God's presence, the psalmist is overwhelmed by his tears. Verse 3. Instead of being surrounded by music and shouts and, and songs of praise, as the psalmist recalls leading the Israelites in worship as they ascend the hill of the Lord to the temple. Verse 4. Instead of this, the psalmist is surrounded by sounds of taunting jeers. Where is your God? Verse 3. So put together the first four verses of Psalm 42, and the heading of Psalm 42 itself gives us a clue to the possible background behind the psalm. The psalmist is very likely to be from one of the sons of Korah. Okay? Who's Korah, we may ask? Korah was one of the musicians from the tribe of Levi. And Korah was placed in charge of temple worship by David and Solomon. Okay? So uh, maybe the closest analogy we have is a little bit like Elder Adrian. Okay? Some of us may not know, but Elder Adrian is actually the elder who's placed in charge of our corporate worship and praise ministry. Okay? So that, that's uh, it's a bit like that. So given that this is so, the psalmist was very likely to be one of the descendants from Korah which means that the psalmist would also have been likewise in charge of temple worship. And the very fact that the psalmist can't do the very thing he longs to do, lead the Israelites in the temple worship of Yahweh, and experience the joys of temple worship as they come before the presence of God, the very fact that he can't do this suggests to us that this psalm could have been composed or at least compiled as part of the psalms during the exilic period or the post-exilic period. As we have some of us may be familiar, this was the period where Israel as a nation, because of her disobedience towards God, was taken into exile and captivity by Babylon. And what we can see from here is that the psalmist is downcast because he longs to worship God. 
And then in verses 5 to 11, the psalmist goes deeper into revealing why he's feeling downcast. And verse 9 goes straight to the heart of the matter. Verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? The psalmist feels forgotten by God. You see, it is one thing to miss and long for the presence of God in our worship of Him. But it is altogether another thing to feel forgotten and abandoned by God. So in preparing this sermon, I recall one of our congregational members here at Bishan who has recently been diagnosed as being sick. Now, it is one thing for this congregational member, for him, to miss coming to church to worship God together with us in the midst of his sickness. But it will be another thing altogether and a more serious matter for this brother to feel forgotten by God in the midst of his sickness. So thank God for Pastor Adrin. Thank God for Elder Kailu, who went to visit, pray with this brother, and encourage this brother. Feeling forgotten by God is what happens when we are surrounded and overwhelmed by the challenges and struggles that life throws at us, where we find ourselves tossed around by the vicissitudes of life, like a small fishing dinghy threatening to break under the massive waves in a storm out at sea. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Verse 7, the psalmist is overwhelmed by the sense of oppression over him. These powerful waters and pounding ocean waves are sweeping over him and threatening to carry him away with them. In the midst of this turmoil, even verse 8, even remembering and knowing that Yahweh commands his steadfast love, his hazard by day and his song by night to the psalmist, even this thought that God is the God of his life, his rock, even remembering and knowing this is not enough for the psalmist. That's why verse 9, he cries out, why have you forgotten me? The storms of life have a way of getting us down and keeping us down, leading us to feel forgotten by God. So far as we have seen, the psalmist is feeling downcast because he, together with his fellow Israelites, are in exile. Carried away by the Babylonians, carried off to a foreign land where he's no longer able to lead his people, the Israelites, in worshipping God at the temple. Instead, he's surrounded by the taunts of his enemies, overwhelmed by their oppression. As a result, he feels downcast as he longs to worship God. He feels downcast as he's forgotten by God. And in Psalm 43, the psalmist reveals yet another feeling. He longs to be vindicated by God. He pleads for God to defend him, for God to deliver him from the oppression of his enemies. Psalm 43, verse 1. And when you think deeper, that's true, isn't it? As God's children, at times where we are misunderstood by others, at times when we are attacked by others and deeply wounded and hurt by them, the one thing that we seek for during those times is vindication, isn't it? 
We want to be vindicated by others, by third parties. We want them to come up to us and say, hey, actually, Edmund, you know, the injustice you suffered, that wasn't fair, that wasn't right to you. We want to hear it from them. We even want to be vindicated by those who misunderstood us and those who hurt us in the process. We want them to realise that they have hurt us and we want them to come and apologise to us. These feelings of wanting vindication are natural feelings. But the passage reminds us that the most important vindication we should long for is to be vindicated by our Lord. And if in true openness and honesty before the Lord, we find His vindication, that is enough for us. Even if third parties, even if the offender does not vindicate us, but if the Lord vindicates us, that is enough for us. Of course, some of us here might feel a little bit alarmed in hearing this, right? And you might ask the question, what happens if our deceitful hearts justify our actions and intentions such that we self-believe that God is vindicating us when actually He isn't? That's why I qualified my earlier statement by saying that this has to be done in complete honesty and openness before the Lord. The heart is deceitful beyond all things. Who can understand it? Only our God can. So a good practice that I'm trying to have now as in, my, in, my, in my own life is as we end the day to spend some moments in prayer and reflection and to plead with the Lord. Dear God, should I have acted in a manner that is not right before you during the course of the day, please stir my conscience and keep sending your spirit to disturb my conscience until I confess and repent before you. And after saying this prayer, spend some quiet moments and allow the Lord to speak to us, to convict us. I think that's a good practice to have. It helps us in seeking the Lord's vindication in all that we do. And if we have the Lord's vindication, I assure you, my brothers and sisters, that is enough for us. But yet at the same time, it also helps us to stay clear of the danger of deceiving ourselves into thinking we have the Lord's vindication when actually we don't. Yeah? So it's at this point that the psalmist longs for God to vindicate him, that there is a slight change in the mood of the psalm. Hope trickles in. It is not the scorching sunlight of a hot afternoon that floods the room, but it is a small stream of light peeping in through the gaps of our window curtains at morning dawn. Driven by the thought of the Lord vindicating him before his enemies, the psalmist expresses his hope that he will one day return before the Lord's presence. He will once again return to God's holy hill and dwelling, the temple with its altar, where there he will behold the Shekinah glory of God, the visible manifestation of God on earth, where there he will be lost in wonder, praise, and verse 4, 43 verse 4, joy, the very thing the psalmist lacks right now. Why so downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Hope in God, for the day will come where I will praise Him, for He is my Saviour and my God. Some pastoral thoughts 
on how we can live out Psalms 42 and 43. The first thing to realize is that feeling downcast is a legitimate and appropriate feeling to have as a Christian. If Psalms 42 and 43 is Scripture, and it is, and if Scripture is the living words of God, and it is, and if Scripture as the living words of God means that this is what God wants to say to us today, and it is, then we can say this, that what Scripture says is equal to what God says. More specifically, what the psalmist in Psalm 42 and 43 is saying in the way that he says it is equal to what God is saying to us today at this very moment. Hebrews 3, 7, after all, reminds us, today, if you hear his voice. If that is so, and it is, then feeling downcast is a legitimate and appropriate feeling to have as a Christian. As a child on our pilgrimage towards our final home, we will face life struggles and challenges. There will be seasons where we feel downcast, where we feel down, where we feel what many spiritual giants down church history have described as the dark night of the soul, where words fail to console us, where nothing seems to work in consoling us. During those moments, I want to say to us, nope, it's more of what God wants to say to us through the psalmist. It is okay. It is okay to feel this way, to struggle with feeling down. God is not going to look at us and say, Edmund, why do you have this depressed look? Why do you have this despondent manner before me? You should instead be exuberant with joy. Popular Christian thinking, our churchly culture might say that to us, but God is not going to say that to us. Extending this out further, what about extended periods of feeling downcast? What about what has now been medically established as clinical depression, where extended and prolonged periods of worsening sadness and feeling downcast happens because of a medical malfunctioning of our brains? In the same light, I believe that as God's people, we need to dispel myths that say the Christian will never be clinically depressed that the Christian is so protected by the joy of the Lord that he or she should never experience clinical depression. And if she or she is experiencing depression, then they need to have more faith, they need to read more scripture, they need to pray more so that the joy of the Lord might dispel away all that depression. I think what we need to dispel are such myths. That's what needs to be dispelled. That's why the next preaching series we're having in ARPC is on mental wellness and the Christian faith. That's why even before we jump to the next series, some of the psalms that we're preaching, like this very psalm today, will give us insight into how we can still worship God in the midst of feeling downcast, even clinical depression. That brings me to my second pastoral point. 
how the psalmist worships God in the midst of his feeling downcast, and how you and I can continue to worship God in the midst of our feeling downcast is by turning to memory and remembrance. Psalm 42 verse 4. In the midst of the psalmist being far away from the temple, the psalmist recalls the times where he led the Israelites in worship of God. Psalm 42 verse 5. Even as he recognizes he is downcast, the psalmist chooses to remember God. Psalm 42 verse 8. And what he remembers about God Actually, more specific, uh, if you look at Psalm 42, verse 8, what he remembers about Yahweh. Notice here that this is the first time in the psalm that God is referred to as Yahweh. In the rest of Psalm 42 and 43, God is referred to as Elohim, the more generic reference for God. But in Psalm 42, verse 8, God is referred to as Yahweh. And what the psalmist remembers about Yahweh at this point is that which came to be particularly associated with Yahweh. And that is Yahweh's steadfast love, His steady covenantal love, His hazard. It is this covenantal love of God that led to God choosing Israel, God saving Israel, God leading Israel into the promised land, and God promising always to be Israel's God. At a time and moment where it seems like this very covenantal love of God is being challenged, the psalmist recalls God's covenantal love shown to them in the past. At present times and moments where we can't seem to see the loving hand of God at work in our lives. At present times and moments where we feel forgotten by God. At present times and moments where we feel downcast that's when we need to turn to memory and remembrance of God's gracious and loving acts to us in the past. And here, turning to memory and remembrance works not not just merely by causing us to remember in a manner that does not affect us in any way, okay? So if I ask you to remember, recall what you had for breakfast this morning, okay? Some of you might have difficulty doing so because you might tell me, I didn't have breakfast, Okay? But if you do manage to recall what you have for breakfast, the next question is, so what? That doesn't affect me. Can you see? So the kind of remembrance that's happening here that the psalmist calls for is not this kind of remembrance where we recall a past event and it doesn't affect us. But here he calls for us to remember in a way so as to steer our disposition and our response to the unknown future. Here, our memory and remembrance of God's covenantal love to us in the past leads us to hope in Him for the future. My third application point. But what happens if we are so downcast? What happens if the intensity of the dark night of the soul is so strong and overwhelming that we are unable to even turn to memory and remembrance? What happens if we are in such a serious state of clinical depression that we can't even mentally or emotionally process our memories and remembrance to position us for the future? What happens if we can't even do that? It's the analogy of telling, uh, I've read this analogy before and I think it's a helpful one. 
The analogy of telling a person who is in clinical depression, you know, sometimes we often say, oh, just read your Bible more, you know, have faith more, pray more, and, and things will be fine, okay? And, 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 the, and, and your depression will be lifted away. Telling a person who is under serious clinical depression that it is almost likened to us going into a dark room, okay? And you try to switch on the light. So you press the switch and the light doesn't come on. So you keep pressing on the light switch and it still doesn't come on. And you get so fed up that you start hammering away at the light switch and it still doesn't come on. The light can't come on because the light bulb has blown. You need to repair and change the light bulb. Only then will pressing the switch facilitate the light coming on. So when you and I in our good intentions tell someone who is clinically depressed to read the Bible more, to have faith more, to pray more, it's like we are hammering away at that light switch. Nothing will happen. The person needs to have the beginnings of medical healing of, them, of their minds and their brains before they will even be able to start processing their Bible reading, their prayer, their faith, their memory, and their remembrance. So what happens in those situations where we are so downcast that there is no way we can turn to our memory and remembrance? That's when we need to borrow on the memory and remembrance of others. I remember my own wife going through a period where she was feeling downcast. That season of feeling downcast was triggered by my sister-in-law's untimely passing away due to aggressive lung cancer. What made it very hard was that my sister-in-law was not a smoker, someone who loved the Lord intensely and was generous towards others. And may my wife struggle. She struggled rationally. She struggled emotionally. How could you, God, take away my sister in this manner? And for a period, she struggled to go to church. She struggled to worship God. She struggled to sing songs of praise to Him. She struggled to speak scripture on her lips. She just couldn't. I remember encouraging her to continue to go to church. She said, I, I don't want, you know, I'm a, I'm a pastor's wife. Why did they see me this way? And I told her, I said, the last thing I want you to think about is that you're a pastor's wife. You are my wife and I love you dearly. Yeah, I don't care about the rest. And I told her, I said, May, it's okay. If you can't sing, you don't have to sing. If you can't listen to the sermon and you need to walk out of the service, go ahead and do so. Just try to be there. And the reason for that, if you can't sing, let your Christian brothers and sisters sing for you. If you can't speak the words of Scripture on your lips, let others speak the Word of God when you can't. If you can't pray during those times, let others pray for you. Allow yourself to borrow the memory and remembrance of others. And all this time, the one prayer that I kept turning to, that I kept praying for me at this season was this one, found in Psalm 73, verses 21 to 24. Let me read it for us. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorance. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel 
and afterward you will receive me to glory. I kept praying this prayer for me. She couldn't pray this prayer on herself, so I prayed it for her. That in the very midst of her raging spiritually and emotionally, God would be with her. That God is holding her right hand, guiding her with his counsel, and leading her all this time to behold his glory. In times when we are so downcast that we can't even pray for ourselves, that is when we need to borrow on the press and the faith of others. Praise God that in due time, in His time, the Lord brought healing to me by giving me the comfort that came most of all from her picturing her sister being with the Lord. That was the one vision that really kept her going. Yeah, as she, as she realized that her sister is now with the Lord, beholding His glory and experiencing the full measure of His love and grace, free from all her pain and suffering. And that is what happens, the fourth and final point. In the midst of us feeling downcast, in the midst of us turning to our memories and remembrance, or if we can't, as we borrow on the memories and remembrance and prayers of others, like the psalmist, we are led to hope in God. And this hope pans out into a hope of being before the Lord's presence again for the psalmist. For us, that hope similarly pans out into a final hope where we will see God face to face, where we will behold His glory, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The Christian tradition has this notion, what they call the beatific vision. Yeah? Put simply, the beatific vision is the climax on con and consummation of that which we have begun to do now and that is the beholding of God's glory. That which we have begun to do now, beholding of God's glory by faith, we shall do fully and completely by sight when we reach heaven and see God on that final day. So the one theologian who really drove this across was the, the great spiritual giant Thomas Aquinas. Yeah? And under Aquinas, the beatific vision, the beatific vision was conceived largely as an intellectual seeing, that we shall know God completely as we know only in part now. And this perfected and completed knowing of God served as the beatific vision for Aquinas. It is more in the hands of the British Puritan, another British theologian down the centuries, John Owen, that the beatific vision is reformed. For Owen, the beatific vision is the beholding of the glory of God. And for Owen, to behold the glory of God is to behold it in the person of Jesus Christ, the one who is fully divine as well as fully human. This beholding of Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, can only be acknowledged by faith now but will one day be apprehended in its fullness in eternity. And for Owen, it was not just an intellectual apprehension the way that it was for Aquinas, but for Owen, it is actually physical seeing and beholding. And it is actual physical seeing because the object at the centre of the beatific vision is the risen Lord Jesus the continuing humanity of Christ, even as He has ascended to the Father's side. 
It is the person of Jesus Christ in his ascended, glorified humanity who is at the center of the beatific vision itself. Owen says this, and allow me to quote from him. The body as glorified with its senses shall have its use and place at the beatific vision. After we are clothed again with our flesh, we shall see our Redeemer with our eyes. Then Christ himself, in his own person, with all his glory, shall be continually with us. As a man sees his neighbour when they stand and converse together face to face, so shall we see the Lord Christ in his glory. It is this final beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ that forms the final hope for us when we are downcast. It will be this hope that sustains us, that eventually sees us through the time when we are downcast, dark and prolonged as the night might be. And I'll even suggest to us that sometimes for those of us that don't survive through the night, seeing the Lord Jesus face to face is still that hope that is sustained for them. Why so downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Hope in God. For the day will come where I will see Him face to face. For He is my Saviour and my God. Amen.